You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. Welcome, everyone, to our sixth episode of Across the Table, where we try to have timely conversations with market leaders on topics that are impacting decisions and really topics that are driving markets. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Glenn Berenbaum and Lance Beter from Grant Thornton and John Karens from Kane Brothers. The format today is still a little bit experimental. The four of us recorded this last week and were able to kind of touch up some of the presentation a bit. So in a minute here, we're going to start the, the broadcast of that. And then at the end of that, we're going to come back to a live Q&A where all the phone lines will be turned on and, and hopefully you'll all have some questions for this uh, illustrious group. So with that, I think we lead off with uh, Glenn giving an introduction of himself. Eliza, you can go ahead and start it. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to the conversation. Grant Thornton is at Global Accounting and Advisory Firm. We do have a dedicated practice that focuses on M&A in the healthcare and life sciences practice. And Lance and I lead that practice, and we do spend a lot of time in the private equity sector. We certainly are seeing the impact of the COVID pandemic to our clients and the industry. And we're anxious to hear and talk about what trends we're seeing in the sector with you and John today. Lance, you want to tell a little more about our practice? Yeah, thank you, Glenn. Appreciate the introduction, Jeff. To expand on Glenn's comments about our practice in the diligence function around healthcare and life sciences, we also leverage a much larger healthcare-focused consulting group that has unique specialties around healthcare functions that support the diligence process. We do have our dedicated financial diligence team, which we've been building over the last eight years and have covered many, many subsectors in healthcare. And looking forward to sharing some of those insights on this presentation. John, maybe give us a little bit about Kane Brothers as well. Sure. Jeff, thanks for having us. John Karen's a managing director with Kane Brothers. For those who aren't familiar, Kane is a healthcare-focused investment bank. The easiest way to describe us is we're roughly 100 bankers and 100% healthcare. We go very deep across healthcare services, break the world up into kind of 15 or 16 different subsectors of healthcare with one to two senior bankers covering each of those respective subsectors. Looking forward to the conversation. It's certainly been a dynamic deal environment over the last two months. Certainly a lot fewer deals getting done, but I think the ones that are getting across the goal lines are you know, pretty interesting insights, and I think it's going to be an interesting second half in regards to M&A. And I'm Jeff Cockrell, the head of the private equity group at McGuire Woods. McGuire Woods has got around 1,100 attorneys across 20-some offices across the country and in Europe. The private equity group that I lead has about 50 or 60 folks where we work with a number of different private equity funds across all different sectors. Within that, I spend pretty much all of my time in healthcare transactions representing private equity funds and their platforms in M&A transactions. Maybe jumping right in, John, maybe we could start with you to launch the discussion. There's been a lot of anxiety around valuations in transactions. We'll talk some more later about process and getting to closing. But right now, people are having a lot of difficulty 
trying to figure out what a company is worth, how the pandemic has changed that valuation, how do you even assess performance in the midst of this? John, as you as you look at the healthcare and life science companies, how are people trying to bridge some of these valuation concerns? I think there are a couple of different ways, and it, it's uh, there's some nuance subsector to subsector. Clearly, provider focused businesses, physician practice management related businesses that have, you know, depending on the region of the country, been shut down for some period of time here. I think that's a segment that's much harder to bridge the valuation gap. And I think groups are still trying to assess, you know, as different parts of the economy open up and different regions of the country open up, what's the new level of normal, right? So I think across subsectors, we're seeing some willingness to give kind of an adjustment on performance during the the last two months, but it's got to be with an understanding of kind of what's the, the return to normal, what's that ramp look like? And I think that's particularly difficult right now in, you know, physician practice management, DSO organizations, and trying to track kind of is 90% of historical volumes sustained now, or is that just based on pent-up demand? And so I think that's an area that continues to be difficult. I would say in areas like healthcare IT, managed care, that have been a little bit more insulated from the current crisis, we're seeing still fairly robust valuations, and some of that's also predicated on the fact that, you know, in, in the case of Medicaid, there's some expectation that enrollment will increase here in the second half of the year as more commercialized transition over to Medicaid. So a lot of moving parts, and I think very, you know, specific to the subsector and then also to, you know, the buyers and how they look to try to get something done. I think we're the conversation around value, I think, is one that very quickly transitions to structure and trying to bridge some of those gaps. And I know we'll be talking a little bit more about that later in the conversation, but I think obviously some interesting approaches that groups are taking, whether it be seller's notes, you know, larger equity roles from existing private equity holders to try to bridge some of these valuation divides and get deals done in this environment. So it's certainly been dynamic, but I, I, I go back to kind of that physician practice management space. I think that that area is going to continue to be a difficult one to ascertain value. Just in the current environment, I think we're going to need to see some kind of recovery period here before you see a lot of transactions in that space. I agree with that, John. You know, I seem listen to the dot com bubble and the recession. You know, I, I think when M and A rebounds, we certainly see earnouts and milestone structures become a little more prevalent to curb the risk for buyers and sellers to get their valuation. It will be interesting to see, you know, when if an earnout a milestone structure is put in place how COVID impacts are weaved into that because it's not normal or the new normal is going to probably include COVID to some extent if there's a a resurgence and this is a issue that we're going to deal with for a long time. Lance, maybe following up, are you seeing kind of the return to normal as a valuation lever, meaning some form of earnout that's tied to a post-closing level of performance, or are you seeing some measure of return to normal as a gating item for closing? Hey, Jeff, I think what we've seen is that in most deals, the deferred proceeds in looking to the future for a normal run rate in performance to be this, the preferred structure, you know, because there are so many 
variables in the operations today that make a constant normalized run rate challenging to predict or even evaluate. Most buyers are hesitant to complete a transaction with so much uncertainty. And in a way to get a deal done is really looking at those uh, structures to include part of the valuation, which allows the seller to reap the reward of cash now with the expectation that the normality will resume in the future and receive the deferred proceeds. The period of time that we've seen of preferred preference is at least 12 to 18 months into the future. And the deal that we've been working on and they are proceeding to close, the sellers are adamantly optimistic that normality will prevail in that time frame. However, buyers are obviously cautious in concluding and ensuring that it does. I would add that in healthcare provider services transactions where there's government reimbursement, the contingent earnout structure poses some specific and difficult regulatory questions. For a long time, earnouts in general for provider service transactions were kind of a no-fly zone. Folks have kind of incrementally taken baby steps out on the branch of that. It's a difficult analysis that doesn't yield specifically clean answers. And in the midst of this, we've seen a marginally increasing appetite to absorb some regulatory risk with respect to contingent purchase price structures. They take a lot of careful thought, and it is not usually as clean as just marking an EBITDA milestone. It can be more complex and more limited, but we're definitely seeing folks willing to explore kind of taking incrementally more regulatory risk to help bridge some of these valuation. Glenn, maybe going back to you, in the context of financial diligence, I mean, typically you'd be looking at some trailing 12-month EBITDA calculus and kind of updating that as you roll along towards a closing. In this environment where the last three months have been dramatically different than the 12 months before, how are people thinking about financial diligence? What measures are they looking to see in the last three months? Uh, But how are people thinking about that? Yeah, our clients, and quite frankly, I think the sellers recognize the situation we're, we're in as well. You know, I think it's important to put a stake in the ground on where the pandemic affected the business that's being traded. And sellers and buyers are being realistic and understanding there's a new run rate. I do think it's extending the diligence period to make sure the buyer has an opportunity to update their analysis. For example, I'm working on a retail pharmacy deal and you know our analysis was through March 20, and now we're sitting in June. We've been tracking, obviously, April and May results, which did get impacted by COVID. So I, I think there's more conversations around the business, and diligence is taking a little longer. Exclusivity periods are a little longer. So we're certainly tracking normalized EBITDA. The other component of financial diligence is working capital and debt-like. And I'll let Lance comment on, you know, what working capital might look like in this this environment. And to some extent, buyers are very 
cautious ensuring they are certain they have enough working capital and we may see a demand to have higher working capital needs to get through when the business is taken over by NUCO, um, they might demand higher working capital levels. To add to you know what you were saying, Glenn, I think that the method of doing financial diligence has changed somewhat. So just backtracking a little bit, you know, in terms of our traditional historical method of doing financial diligence, of traveling out and having in-person interviews and meetings has changed tremendously. Everything's gone virtual, which has actually been beneficial and has accelerated some of those interactions, which were generally delayed in the past. So diligence still continues, but in terms of the scope, some of the focus that we now include is obviously looking at those COVID-related adjustments that relates to you know, potential payroll protection that the company has applied for, uh, potential deferrals of payroll taxes that are deferred into the future. But there's also a focus on projecting out what may be the new normal and understanding the impact to the practice or the business into the future. So that's how you know, some of the diligence scopes have changed and what we focus on. There's also an understanding of how the practice would actually operationally get back to normal. As it relates to working capital and debt, I think that the working capital metric is much more looking at the current period or even a projected working capital for the closing. As it relates to debt, a lot of what we're seeing right now is these PPP loans and some of these Main Street lending loans that have been accessed, which potentially either get forgiven for the PPP loans and the understanding of what applications, if any, have been made for forgiveness. On a recent transaction, the seller had recently applied for PPP loan and simultaneously was applying for forgiveness. And through the transaction, the forgiveness wouldn't be sustained because of certain parameters around the buyer's makeup. And the seller as part of closing, paid back the loan pre-closing on the day before closing, effectively nullifying any debt relating to the PPP loans. And maybe, Jeff, if you want to comment on what you've seen around some of the structures and you know the deals around providers or operators that have applied for debt and how that's been treated as part of the transaction. Sure. Where there are a number of interesting dynamics, you put your finger on one of them. The sellers often view those PPP loans as a grant, but as you noted, there's some conditions on that, and there's a real possibility that it could not be a grant and, in fact, have to be repaid. And that can create some conundrums of how you're going to treat that. Typically, you would put some conditionality on the treatment of that. You may have enough time between when you're starting the process and when you're closing to find out if they're going to be forgiven. It, it usually has an eight-week run rate on what you're doing with those PPP loan proceeds, but that can be certainly a factor. There's also other programs that are a little unclear as to exactly how people should be thinking about and treating them, whether those are some of the advanced payment metrics from CMS. They can all create some difficulty in uh, applying typical methodologies for working capital, and you have to think through a number of different permutations that wouldn't normally be present. 
John, maybe shifting gears a little bit, one of the impacts on valuation that we are seeing is the availability of senior debt financing. We are a long way from the free-flowing debt availability days of four months ago. What impact are you seeing on valuations as it relates to debt availability, impact on even getting to a closing, and how are people thinking about and bridging around some of those uh, limitations? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. It's one of the, I think, the gating factors for a more robust second half you know, M&A environment. I mean, what we've seen in the aggregate is kind of for deals that are getting done, total leverage is down about one turn of EBITDA, and the cost of debt is increased somewhere between 150 and 200 basis points, kind of total all-in yield. So it is putting pressure on transactions. I think a couple trends that we've seen one, I think incumbent lenders have become much more important. If they're able to, you know, a sponsor to sponsor transaction, if the incumbent lender is willing to to grow and increase their hold with the transaction, that can be very helpful in facilitating a transaction. They're comfortable with the credit. They know the story. I think the other trend that we've seen is that there are, well, all the direct lenders are telling the market that they're open for business. I think we're seeing that Groups are tending to gravitate to private equity groups where they have a strong historical relationship. They've done five to 10 deals with them historically. They've got a good track record working with them. Those are the kinds of transactions they'd like to support. That's another consideration just in terms of as private equity groups think about making investments, you know, identifying a few direct lenders that they've got strong relationships with that are going to be supportive of a, a transaction. I think the other dynamic we have seen is some larger funds coming down market to do you know, smaller deals with 100% equity. And oftentimes they're you know, higher growth companies or companies where they see an ability to put some additional capital to work through M&A over time or you know, quickly scale up that investment with the idea that they'll refinance the company, put some debt on it at some point after the transaction. So a couple of different approaches. I think the other change we've seen is, is a little larger equity role in the lower middle market sponsor that owns an asset that's selling to a, a larger sponsor. We're seeing larger equity roles where in the past you would have expected you know, a full exit from the current owner. You're now seeing you know, 20, 30% equity roles from the current private equity group as a way to bridge that lower leverage point. So a couple interesting dynamics, but I, I do think, you know, seeing some encouraging signs both in the direct lender market as well as some kind of early signs of better activity in the syndicated loan market that hopefully will facilitate more M&A in, in the second half here. I would also add, and you alluded to it earlier in your comments, that another bridge for both valuation but also the availability of senior financing is a subordinated seller paper. If the sellers really insistent on holding the pricing, which they often are, that can be a bridge where you can kind of force them to put their money where their mouth is and, and make them into part of the credit package. That's been a useful construct that a, a buyer would often prefer that over a greater role because obviously the dilutive effect of greater seller role, while it bridges some valuation uh, and bridges cash at closing concerns, dilution is not free uh, and will be expensive later on if, if the investment is a success. Maybe talking on process, 
we heard some on kind of the, the, the virtual nature of some of the diligence. How are you all seeing the impact of an inability to have face-to-face meetings impacting kind of the starting of transactions or the pace of them? It seems like some of the limitations on management meetings can present some real difficulties for new transactions. John, maybe uh, start with you, so that's mostly in your uh, wheelhouse. Yeah, we've been fortunate enough we were able to get a handful of deals done over the last few months here with clients through the crisis. I think the common thread with all of those is they most of those conversations were well advanced, kind of going into the respective lockdowns around the country. The buyers and sellers knew each other pretty well. And I'd say in the majority of those transactions, you had a well-capitalized buyer, either a strategic or you know private equity-backed strategic on the other side. And those seem to be kind of key factors in facilitating those deals through the last few months. I think as we transition and start to think about deals that, you know, we were about to bring to market, that we put on pause, clearly there's there's kind of company-specific considerations about, you know, how's the company been impacted by COVID, you know, more practical considerations about, you know, what's the buyer universe we're going to approach, who's met with management before, how well do they know them, and I, I do think, you know, we've seen both on the buy side now, as well as some sell side processes that we're, you know, we're about to launch, I think much more targeted buyer groups, oftentimes tied to you know, prior dialogue with the company and management. I think particularly as you think about private equity investors, their ability to meet with management and assess them and, and get comfortable with them as partners is very critical to getting a deal done. The latter stages of diligence, more confirmatory, legal, financial, a lot of that can be done virtually as it often has been. But I think that interaction between the buyer and the seller, getting to know the management team, getting to know your new partner, that's certainly been impeded. We're seeing some interesting activity in terms of people you know, using private jets and trying to meet outdoor at, at parks and outdoor restaurants for those who are willing to travel. And I think that's going to continue to evolve throughout the summer. I do think you know a lot of the deals that are moving forward in this environment are with buyers that knew the target before all this got underway. Yeah, I have not been invited on a private jet or yacht to do a diligence meeting yet, but I think you hit the nail on the head, John, is the deals where management has already met the prospective buyer, they're really getting through diligence with ease using you know, Microsoft Teams or or Zoom. The virtual meetings might just take a little longer. You know, we've been breaking up our diligence sessions into, you know, probably three or four hours where, you know, traditionally we, we might sit in a room for a day and a half and just, but now we're staggering those blocks of times over a couple of days. So things are taking a little longer to get done, but all in all, if the rapport is already built, I think they've checked the box on their comfort of management. The diligence process gets done. It will be interesting, you know, as we enter into the second half and new deals and new relationships are beginning to start on new processes. The importance, certainly from private equity's perspective, to understand the owners and operators as business partners, I do think there's an intangible value that can't be replaced as far as looking someone in the eye and really getting comfortable with the management team. 
we get, and Lance, you can comment, asked often, you know, we don't publish it necessarily in our diligence reports, but we do get asked what you think of the accounting team, what you think of the operator, and that's tough to make an assessment over video. I do think we're seeing some groups try to be creative, especially, you know, site-specific businesses, whether it's trying to do, you know, some prepackaged videos, you know, to, to orient the buyers to the different sites and kind of show them the quality of the, the facility. But there are latter stages of diligence around compliance visits that you need to do in person. And so, you know, those could still be a gating item. We've seen kind of a willingness on on the part of buyers to get creative about you know, trying to send a, a very small, discrete team out to do you know, site visits or kind of doing a sampling of different sites to get a, a perspective on compliance. Lots of kind of interesting issues to try to navigate in terms of you know, facilitating some of this diligence and getting to, to know the, uh, the target. I've found that what you're describing with platform sales is definitely true with respect to add-on acquisitions, which can be small, big, or medium in relation to the size of the platform. Those have been a little easier to continue down the pathway with. There's a little less reliance on the management team or the principles of the, of the target that's being acquired. So that takes a little pressure off of need to have a face-to-face where you can kind of really assess someone. Uh, so those add-ons have been a little easier to navigate in the midst of this. Brings us to maybe another topic of distress. In addition to regular transactions, we're seeing a lot more, everyone might expect, companies that are needing to be quick sellers. Glenn, what are you seeing on the distressed acquisition front, and who are you seeing as being participants in it? Is it typical participants, or are regular funds and buyers dipping their toe into the distressed market? I would say that the distressed activity, quite frankly, hasn't come to full bear yet. We're having a few conversations about distressed assets, but I think, you know, the credit market is still lagging behind a little and have given, you know, these companies a little more time to pay off their debt. I suspect third quarter, if they're not making their payments, we're going to start hearing more about distress. You know, our clients, I do think what you mentioned is is that they will dip their toe in now. It's just a necessity in this environment to assess that risk. You know, we do, you know, also have a Grant Thornton, a, a restructuring insolvency practice, and they have said the same thing, that they haven't seen the full bore of all the transactions they expect to see in distress. I mean, in healthcare, we also play in the non-for-profit sector. We certainly expect to see a lot of hospitals that, if they were thinking about affiliation before, they're probably certainly thinking about affiliation now for financial stability. So, you know, I know, you know, part of our conversation will be winners and losers and, and neutral. I think there's going to be a lot of, of winners in the hospital sector to take over distressed hospitals to also look at distressed physician practices that carry ambulatory surgery centers. They've been primarily shut down since the pandemic, as John mentioned earlier. So I think we're going to see a lot of distress activity in the PPM market. I mean, these businesses probably do not look the same 
what they did three, four months ago, and they had to uh, furlough or restructure. And then they're also investing in telehealth, which has changed the dynamic of these businesses, which quite frankly, I, I think creates more uncertainty because you have pairs like United saying telehealth is being used as a convenience and not really necessary. We also are getting full reimbursement for telehealth today, and I suspect that those reimbursement will decline in the future for telehealth. To add on to your, your point there, I think the trigger point that you know, 19 days away is the end of June to see if these you know leveraged providers are going to be able to service their debt. It really is like a double-edged sword, right? Uh, lenders don't want to be operators. And, you know, when they when the lending was provided, it was on a healthy provider. The other fact that's driving, you know, a delay in the distressed investing is really the lifelines that have been given to providers and businesses right now, you know, with the CARES Act and the Main Street lending. There are opportunities for these providers to sustain a longer period of stress, uh, but there's no doubt that the inevitables out there, that there will be further consolidation, and to the point of what the landscape looks like, you know, it's very likely that you see a tremendous amount of consolidation in the next 12 to 24 months. Yeah, I I would agree. I think that the distressed assets we're seeing at the moment generally were troubled businesses as of 12-31-19, and so some kind of pre-existing issue with the business, I think, June 30th and September 30th will be kind of important dates as principal and interest payments come up for these respective businesses. And we may see, you know, a kind of a second wave of distressed assets here. Yeah, as one of my restructuring partners uh, often says that most businesses that are in distress earn the right to be there, certainly accelerated some of those trends and brought them very quickly to a head. But John, as you indicated, most of the initial distress that we're seeing or companies that were in some measure of distress before. One of the big dynamics that we've encountered and how it plays out in the midst of looking at a transaction is kind of where the fulcrum equity is. Um, If the sponsor, for example, is deeply out of the money, they may be inclined to just hand the keys over to the lender in some form or another. The lender is not an operator, nor do they want to be an operator. Depending on how far out of the money they are, they may be looking for a quick exit off of their books of this investment uh, as well. Furthermore, often a uh, the senior debt may not be made up of a single lender, but a, a syndicate where no particular investor in that syndicate has enough of an economic stake to undertake the burdens of pushing a, a turnaround. So all of those dynamics can translate to a company going from moderately distressed to very quickly uh, the lenders looking to unload that uh, asset. So that's one of the dynamics that we're seeing. I think that the distressed investing is going to be subsector specific. You know, certain you know, providers have been more affected than others. I know we've mentioned, you know, physician practice management as a primary candidate. I think that's fair. I think, you know, dental is another sector that's been immensely affected from the COVID outbreak. But some subsectors have been resilient. You know, from what we've seen, capitated providers, home health care, 
you know, services into hospital systems have generally fared fairly well and have sustained over this period. But there's certainly, you know, consolidation and distress will vary by subsector. For sure. And I would also add that even in physician practice management, there are some very good businesses that have been dramatically negative effect been on pause, but when the pause is lifted, they're still going to be good businesses. Thinking like a dermatology practice where you've not been able to see your dermatologist, once that is more available, people are still going to go back to their dermatologist. And some of those businesses have been absorbing significant blows, but are not symptomatic of an underlying malaise in the business. And in those instances, the sponsors have been much more willing to stand by the by the company for obvious reasons and think creatively about how to fund those businesses, which brings maybe an, another topic for sponsors that are supporting these businesses, what kind of creative approaches towards sustaining those businesses in the midst of this have you all seen? Yeah, I was actually reading this morning, I think it was in buyouts, that it's definitely become a common practice for the GPs to ask the limited partners for the ability to use their fund leverage to prop up their older investments and in, in port codes. You know, that's not unexpected. I mean, these are good assets that need some capital infusion to weather the storm here. But as you mentioned, Jeff, there's some pent up demand in these provider services that, you know, is going to roll into the future like dermatology or orthopedic, you know, people need to get those procedures. So it's really not necessarily lost revenue. And Glenn, that's an interesting note on the fund level borrowing. When a portfolio company may be unable to access credit, the fund either using its entire portfolio as collateral or depending on where you are in the life cycle of, of the fund, using the unfunded commitments of the fund as collateral. The fund itself often has access to credit that can then turn into either debt or more likely uh, an equity investment into the portfolio company that's needing some sort of capital to bridge through a temporary pause. So, yeah, we're definitely seeing people think creatively. Maybe turning to another topic on winners and losers, we've touched a little bit on some of the, the obvious winners if you're telehealth business that's obviously been in much greater demand. But what are some of the other variables you're seeing as being determinative of whether or not particular subsectors are kind of coming out ahead or coming out significantly behind in the midst of this pandemic? Yeah, Jeff, I'll start the discussion on that one. I think, you know, it's no surprise anything that's relatable to the fight of COVID is in demand. The likes of laboratory services, logistics around laboratory services, testing facilities, and the like are in demand. You, know, you mentioned the telehealth, and that's a fairly obvious one. And it's no doubt that you know all providers are turning to telehealth consultations to continue to serve their patients and continue to bill. I mentioned earlier that there were what we've seen is in the capitated primary care space. That that's a sector that's still robust and active. Home health care providers, my initial thought was that home health care would be 
impacted. However, it's actually been quite a resilient subsector, and our clients in that space have been pretty active in home health care and all aspects of home health care from skilled to unskilled to hospice, still a very active subsector. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, let, I echo those points, Lance, just around we're seeing obviously in the managed care sector and I, also I think in the healthcare IT sector focused particularly on payers, those are both somewhat insulated from what's going on at the moment. That may evolve in terms of as there's as unemployment rises and there's fewer commercial lives but certainly some of the Medicaid plans may be beneficiaries of that trend over the next six months or so. I think then there's a group of businesses that are, to your point, Lance, around whether it be kind of responding to COVID, you know, contract manufacturing businesses that are supporting pharma. We've heard kind of universally and talking to a number of clients in that space that they've seen great demand as there's concerns around supply chain. And hospitals and wholesalers are really stocking up on essential medicine. That's been a actually an area of growth. I think kind of related to telehealth, any kind of communication platform that's facilitating, you know, communication, whether that be on the pharma side or with physicians and payers, I think there's kind of renewed interest in any technologies that are facilitating, you know, better communication. We've seen the, the CRO and the CDMO push as well. They are strong assets. On the loser side, Jeff, I mean, I, I think this, as you mentioned before, the writing might have already been on the wall and they earned the, <laughs> the right to be in distress. But the senior living, long-term living, you know, has certainly taken a hit. And, and on the majority of the COVID cases in, in our country are in those facilities and the debt service on those type of businesses from an OPCO, PropCO standpoint are very high. But so hopefully they survive. But I think that will be part of the distress activity that we will see in the fourth quarter. There's also another level where you can think about the impact on some of these businesses, and that's on the kind of the broader economic malaise in the country. If individuals have less money to spend on anything, it can impact some of these services, depending in no small measure on kind of the nature of the reimbursement for those services. So if, if it's mostly government reimbursed, that is better in that environment than something that might be more self-pay or the impact of high deductible plans where we're now getting close to halfway into the year and people may not have been utilizing healthcare services, so they've not gotten very far into their high deductible, maybe pushing off some elective or semi-elective procedures until next year might make sense at kind of an individual economic level. Conversely, businesses, and uh, I think one of you touched on this earlier, uh, if you're in a capitated business where you're getting kind of per patient per month payments while utilization might be constrained, those sorts of businesses might be faring better as a function of how they're being reimbursed. So there's a lot of layers to think through how these businesses will be impacted going forward. That's very interesting because, you know, for the last few years, we've been talking about consumerism and healthcare, and an event like this, you know, obviously retail is getting crushed right now. And I suspect you're comment is absolutely correct is, you know, when people are self-paying in a down economy like this, 
those plastic surgery or elective type of procedures are certainly uh, probably going to go down. For sure, and an elective goes a lot further than purely cosmetic. All of the non-emergency type procedures have some electability as to when they're going to occur. So if it's a hip replacement that's not emergent, I'm going to have to have it done at some point, but it may be deferrable. We could go on for quite a while, but I think we've run to the end of our time limit. This has been a great discussion. Glenn, Lance, John, you've been terrific, and thank you for spending a little time with us today. Likewise, appreciate the time. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, uh, Glenn, Lance, and John. We're back live here. I think I mentioned this is a bit of an experimental format where we're kind of doing the broadcast to tighten up the production a bit and then coming back to field some questions. So Liza's going to turn off the mute on everyone's mics and hopefully it'll not be too much of a circus, but we'd love to hear some questions from from the listeners. And, and while you're thinking of a question, I might kick us off with one. John, I'll direct this one at you. We talk a lot about the, the kind of the factors that are causing the slowdown and how things might play out as we start to open up and, and deals start to happen. I guess one question is, as you look at this starting to begin, are you really seeing many new things start and are you kind of optimistic or pessimistic in the near to midterm future that things are going to get back on a more kind of quicker pace with deals actually happening? So what's your uh, optimistic, pessimistic read on kind of where you see things going? Cautiously optimistic might be the way to phrase it for now. We certainly look at new business development activity, pitch activity across our platform. And just in the last two or three weeks, we've seen just a number of, you know, beyond anecdotal, you know, some real signs of activity in groups who are thinking about you know, testing the market in the second half. And I think there's still a lot of questions around, you know, how open are the debt markets? How do we navigate? If it's a founder-owned business that you want to take out to meet with sponsors, how do we facilitate those conversations in a meaningful way kind of beyond Zoom? So there's still some questions, but I think we've seen a lot more interest in thinking about testing the market, you know, a notable pickup just in pitch activity over the last two or three weeks, which I think is encouraging for the broader market. Glenn or Lance, what's your uh, optimistic, pessimistic barometer? I think that the optimistic barometer is probably later in the uh, fourth quarter. You know, in terms of like uh, sell side mandates where we assist the sellers in beginning processes, we've seen a lot more buy side activity, frankly, right now than we have seen sell side, you know, to John's point. But I think the the writing on the wall is that, you know, we'll we'll start to see some mandates pick up in the third quarter, but, you know, go to market in in the fourth quarter. I think that the general consensus, I do feel that, you know, as with every state opening up and having different mandates, it is creating some confusion, especially with those larger platforms that have multi-state operations and could create a little bit more of a delay. I don't think... uh, those practices that have large regional foot footprints are going to be easier. I think uh, those that are more regional players that have their protocols in place and regain normality will probably be those that go to market first. 
But I, I think just to reemphasize something we discussed on the call for the podcast is the fact that you know many of these practices are still dealing with the uh, financing and the lifelines that are being provided. Yeah, um, and, and those distressed deals will you know certainly start to ramp up as well. Thanks, uh, Lance. Maybe opening it up a little bit. Does anyone that's uh, tuned in have any questions for our uh, our group here? We'd love to field them. So just jump right in if you've got one. Jeff, it's uh, Raj Katari at Cascade. Just curious what you guys are seeing in terms of language and discussions with the rep and warranty insurers coming out of the COVID as it relates to the to these uh, to these deals. I'm happy to field that. I'm seeing that the rep and warranty insurers are hungry to place their policies and that they've been pretty accommodating to get things done. We've seen them reaching into markets that have been a little bit more difficult, say a smaller provider services transaction. I've seen them be very accommodating even in the context of a distress transaction where you've got the reps and warranties being made by a company that's not even going to be there, likely in the near term. I've found that their kind of hunger to place product has kind of overcome what you might think would make for a challenging environment to get policies placed. I think that market is very available and frankly can be a bridge, uh, especially in a distress context where you may be dealing more with the lender than the sponsor uh, and the ability to cover kind of risk allocation through a policy, even a uh, no seller indemnity policy where the buyer's absorbing the entire retention has really opened up the ability to get some transactions moving. But uh, John and Lance, Glenn, uh, any other thoughts on the RWI market? Hey, Jeff, this is Lance. You know, the one comment I would throw in there is that you know, everyone, you know, at this stage, very focused on the material adverse effect and, and what constitutes a MAE. And, you know, in terms of the coverage, I think you're right, Jeff, there's still a, a desire and, and a need to have reps and warranty insurance, and the insurance companies are actively doing so. But I think there's also a more, you know, refinement and scrutiny around, you know, what we've just lived through and ensuring that they have the right protection that they expect will, you know, be derived from a policy should they need it. I think that's right, that uh, the, the carriers certainly are not wanting their rep and warranty policy to be a backdoor kind of business interruption policy for the buyer. So certainly some thinking around that, and I think that's probably a fair concern on their part, but their willingness to jump in that market has been helpful. And thanks for that question. Any other questions from the, the audience we want to throw in? Hey, it's Dan Brown, Creative Health Capital. You mentioned about pressure on private equity firms to support portfolio companies. Are you seeing any innovation around the structure like priming loans or how are they putting money into those companies? The most private equity funds that I encounter will kind of have gradations of their desire to finance the company further. They first want to access uh, available debt markets and there can be both kind of their incumbent lenders can be a mechanism for that, but there's also some creative lenders on top of that. 
if, if they're putting in additional uh, dollars, uh, it can be kind of all over the board as to how they're going to view it as a loan. I've seen the putting additional equity dollars <clears throat> not been the resource that I've seen people tapping right out of the gate and trying first to really, really batten down the hatches and control bleeding dollars, drawing down available credit that they have. But the fund financing it is obviously always available, but not the leading move. Yeah, and Jeff, and just to add something creative that we have seen as well is a portco to portco deals. Where there's a natural fit for you know one portco in a maybe a separate fund, which has the access to debt to do a transaction, to trade between the port codes, which, you know, essentially isn't a very common, you know, trend, but it is something that we've seen once or twice now. I know Glenn saw one transaction as well, which was fund to fund, and I was involved with a, you know, potential deal, which was port code to port code, a way in which to access debt, which resided at a port code, which had a line to do a deal and remove the onus of, you know, a reporting and finding a payment coming due from another port code. So, I mean, there's certainly creative ways in which to, you know, look at a portfolio and see how to trade between them. But it is a process, right? It isn't just like, you know, flipping a port code to another port code and signing a few docs. That is still a process, but that is something that we've seen starting to rise now. You know, a lot of creative thinking. As you were going through those possibilities, my uh, mind was spinning with things to think about in each of those. Every kind of potential pathway has its own complexities and risks tended to it, but certainly a lot of creative thinking as people are trying to mitigate shortages of capital in a lot of different places. Any other questions from the audience? Well, uh, thank you, everyone. This has been a ton of fun. We hope to see you all on the, the next episode of Across the Table. This has been a, a great discussion, and I just want to thank our guests one more time. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Have a good day. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.